And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Uh, I'm doing alright. I was actually sick this past week-ish, but I'm doing better. That's good to hear. Yeah, how about you? I'm doing great. I will say that I like that we ask how we're doing as if... We, we had haven't no seen, idea, yeah, and do if, not live together, and would have seen the progress of that person yeah. for the past week. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a fiction for the listeners. It's a, that the married couple does not live together. No, it's like it's like a um, it's a convention. It's a way to ease in. Yeah, and also like to let them know how we've been doing without like it seeming Being bizarre. Like, yeah, yeah, like, just like straight up talking like cold open yeah 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 like it's it's conversational it's 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 a convention but yes like we do we are married so like we do actually know these things yes um such as the fiction of what are we watching this week exactly see like you know that but you ask me at the top of every episode so like there's some stuff you know like like behind the curtains the show is not as off the cuff but we we don't just like throw down like a <laughs> recording device and just start like recording like ah and like I just made up what movie we're watching and like all the information that I talk about it is just coming right off the dome like there's there's I mean, some that, prep work that, that goes happens. there's some prep work that goes into this show for sure we're not completely a little old, old man behind the curtain with like a bunch of controls operating a giant green head right that's a Wizard of Oz reference yes. for you yeah mm-hmm. okay. Gotcha. It's not a horror movie, so I thought it would be good to specify. Right, yeah, because no one's seen Wizard of Oz. It's such an obscure old movie. Yeah. So what are we watching, Ben? Uh, so this week, Sarah, we are watching The Black Cat from 1941. All which right. I emphasize to distinguish it from... 1934. Right. Uh, but, like the 1934 version, this is from Universal Studios... And features Bella Lugosi in the cast. Boris Karloff? No. Okay. As I've already hinted, we've seen a lot of versions of the Black Cat for this show already. Regardless of whether they were called by that title or not. <laughs> the Black Cat from 1934 is currently ranked number five. Yes. It's it's quite highly good. ranked. Yes, it it's quite good. good. Yeah. I I have a feeling this is not going to rank that Higher? high. You don't want to have a cat fight between them? <sighs> what about some of the other versions that we've seen? The other films that we've watched that have adapted The Black Cat are, in chronological order, The Avenging Conscience from 1914, Unheimliche Geschichten from 1919, and 1932, The Black Cat from 1934, and Sex Maniac. From 1934. Yeah, it's, it really pops up a lot. What's interesting is the other films that have, like, adapted or had reference to Edgar Allan Poe, there's only three of them. Fall of the House of Usher from 1928, Murders in the Rue Morgue, 1932, and The Raven, 1935. Mm-hmm. So that, that's three that are, like, 
invoking his name and or, and or adapting other literary works mm-hmm. of Poe's. But then we have like five, now six films specifically working off of the Black Cat. Well, I mean, Unheimlich Shipton is like a an anthology movie, so I think there was like at least one other Poe story in there. And like Avenging Conscience was like, also had some Telltale Heart and like, you know, it was like three different things stuffed in a stew. But I, I certainly get what you're saying. Yeah, honestly, like, Avenging Conscience, I would kind of tie it more to the Telltale Heart. But I remember that film opening with like, you know, specifically talking about the Black Cat, but also having a lot of references to a lot of other Poe's yeah. stuff. In Heimlicka Geschichten, the 1919 version, was an anthology film. Some of it was original, some of it was adapting other stuff, um, but it had one segment that was specifically on the Black Cat. Yes, it was like a direct, specific adaptation. Yeah. Poorly done, but still. <clears throat> 1932 kind of used the Black Cat story as, like, an inciting incident and then just kind of went off on its own. Yeah, well, because it took the stories from the anthology version and tried to, like... Morph them into a single narrative. Yes. Which was interesting. The Black Cat from 1934, the only semblance to the story is that there is a Black Cat. Yeah. And there is a wife... Hold up in a basement, like dead in a basement. Right, you know what I mean. It, in a way, but yes. Like, that black, like nineteen thirty four, is not. It's 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 really its own thing. Like it's it's they put a black cat in the movie so that they could call it the black cat and say it was Edgar Allan Poe. But like it is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, nineteen thirty five's The Raven was kind of like that too, where yeah. it wasn't like about the Raven story poem. Yeah. It was just a bunch of like Poe things with an emphasis on torture devices, rolled into one. Yeah, Lugosi's character just liked the raven as a poem. He had, like, a statue, a bust. It was a stuffed raven. Oh, was it? Listen, it's it's been been a while. while. Fall of the House of Usher was probably, like, the closest adaptation of a Poe piece. Sure. Murders in the Rue Morgue, maybe, but it, it sidesteps into, like, not horror so often to try to, like, mitigate it that it's, like, I don't know. But in terms of, like, the closest adaptation of the Black Cat short story, honestly, it might be Sex Maniac. Yeah. Yep. Which is so weird. Yeah. (laughs) What is, like, um, what's the original short story, just, like, divorced from all these other elements? Poe published the Black Cat short story in 1843, and it's about this guy, uh, it's told from his first-person narrative, and this guy explains that he has always loved animals, and he and his wife own a black cat named Pluto. The guy becomes an alcoholic and abusive to this cat, gouging out its eye at one point, and eventually killing it. Now, he feels very guilty about this, and he comes across a similar black cat um, that looks close enough to Pluto, but uh, and is also missing an eye, that he's like, you know what, I'll take this cat home and, you know, it'll be better. But this cat begins to become a bit of a symbol of his past transgressions, and he becomes abusive towards this cat again um, because of this, like, embodiment of that shame. He actually goes to kill the cat in this, like, alcoholic rage. His wife tries to stop him, 
and in his rage he kills her instead. He decides to hide her body in a basement wall, and in the midst of putting up the bricks or whatever, the cat has gone missing. The cops come looking for the wife because, hey, someone disappeared, and eventually they go to the basement to look, and they hear a cat's wails coming from the wall. They go in, and they discover the wife's body. So the the part of this story that's been used the most often is the, like, body behind the wall, and, like, we find it because a cat is meowing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why you see Poe's work get used in this weird piecemeal fashion where, like, you know, with the black cat, like, they take the one climactic thing and expand it into this whole movie. Or, like, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is really, like, one scene of that movie is from the short story, and then it builds this whole other unrelated thing around it. Is because, like, when you read Poe, like... There are moments of Poe that you remember clearly, but how you get there is always a little fuzzy. Well, it's because, like, Poe doesn't care about plot, right? He cares about that climax. Yeah, Poe cares about those moments, right? The terror or the horror of, like, a specific feeling at a specific time. Like, The Raven is a perfect example. Like, nothing happens, right? Or, like, The Telltale Heart is all just about, like, this dude thinking he hears the heart under the floorboards. Like, that's what matters. The plots either, like, are very weak or just, like, aren't there in a lot of them. Or just, like, revealed through, like, flashback stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Or, like, narration, but not really shown to us as a story. Um, So it it sort of makes sense to me that, like, no one's really adapted Poe outright. They just sort of take things from him because it's really a style that works much better in prose than in film. Um, and it's why, like, I think, you know, Fall of the House of Usher is the closest thing to, like, a real Poe movie we've seen because, like, um, Usher was, like, a novella, wasn't it? Like, it was a little bit longer. It wasn't just a short story, right? Yeah. Um, Poe definitely likes to tell rather than show. And with film, you kind of have to show instead of tell. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the other reason why you see people invoking Poe so much is, yes, exactly what you're saying about, like, it's very easy to just graft a Poe idea onto your own script, and then you can still claim the, like, literary recognition Mm. and prestige that comes along with us. Poe is associated with this. Right. Mary Shelley is associated with this. H.G. Wells, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. Like, that's why a lot of our early horror films, like, we don't really see it as much now, but, like, 30s and earlier, they were all adaptations of books of some sort. Yeah. It's sort of funny, then, that, like, the quote-unquote Poe adaptation that is ranked the highest on our list is the one that, like, as you said has the least to do with anything actually from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, I think (laughs) what's also kind of funny is with the 1934 Black Cat, I spent so much time on that episode going into the history of the tensions between Hungary and Austria and just the tumultuous history between those two countries and how that is baked into the black cat Mm -hmm. on a level where you don't need it to watch it, but who boy, it adds a whole nother layer. And I think that's also why it ranked so high. Yeah. That movie is a movie that's about something right. In a very like 
capital letters kind of way, you know? Yeah. What would you call this? Because, like, they're just... It, are, yeah. are they even a fully adapting yeah, the like, story? You could say that they're readapting, like it's a different adaptation of the post story, except that neither the 34 movie or really this are really adaptations. Like, they're both doing the same inspired by mm. thing, right? So we're really just seeing another movie with the same title claiming the same inspiration from Edgar Allan Poe, but it's not a remake of the 1934 movie. It's not an adaptation, really, of the short story any more than the 1934 movie was. It's just it's just two different movies that happen to share the same title, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's kind of all it is. So why don't you tell us a bit more about it so we'll have uh, some more context. So from what I can tell, The Black Cat began production at Universal Studios with the intent to make a straight horror film. Okay. So, yet again, the idea was to borrow kind of the bare minimum from Poe to use the name value. And the first script drafts were from writers Robert Neville and Eric Taylor. Taylor was an extremely prolific writer in this period. Uh, He was a co-writer on Black Friday with Kurt Seidmack. um, And he would go on to work on The Ghost of Frankenstein, the 1943 remake of Phantom of the Opera, and Son of Dracula for Universal. Okay. However, at some point in production, producer Burt Kelly decided the Black Cat should be retooled to try and replicate the great success that Paramount had had with their Bob Hope horror comedies, 1939's remake of The Cat and the Canary, and 1941's The Ghostbreakers, which is kind of the 40s version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> okay. And we, we definitely did not watch either of those films. Yeah, because they are, they are comedies. Yeah, they are straight yeah. up. Like, the 1939 remake of Cat and the Canary is a Bob Hope movie. Same with Ghostbreakers. Like, you know, it's a Bob Hope movie. So, to the end of trying to replicate those movies more, Kelly hired some gag writers to come in and add some comedy to the already existing script. So, these writers were Robert Lees and his writing partner, Frederick Rinaldo, and they had previously worked with Kelly on Universal's The Invisible Woman from 1940, which took the Invisible Man premise that Universal had the rights to and applied it to a screwball romantic comedy formula. Lees and Rinaldo couldn't change the Black Cat into being a 100% comedy, So instead, they just sort of peppered gags and jokes throughout the existing Old Dark House setup of the original script. So what you're kind of describing here sounds like it's going to be a horror movie with some, like, comedic seasonings. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Um, Because the Universal bosses liked their efforts here so much that it won them the job of writing the much more clearly comedic horror comedy film Hold That Ghost later in 1941, which was the fourth Abbott and Costello movie at Universal. And their success doing that movie led to the duo writing six more Abbott and Costello pictures, including Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. Okay, so there is the very real possibility that this will be more comedy than horror. Yeah, we're going to have to see. Um, certainly, you know, Hold That Ghost is definitely 
a comedy. It stars Abbott and Costello. It's also a great name, <laughs> for the record. Um, it, it's just, to me, kind of funny to see how these guys started with, like, this kind of horror comedy mix. That was so successful, it got them into, like, the straight comedy of Abbott and Costello, and eventually that loops back around into Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein at the end of the decade. Side note, I... I, I totally understand why, like, horror and comedy go hand-in-hand hand for so long. Because we saw, like, great success with, like, a comedic director, a comedy director, coming in on Murders in the Zoo, and that movie just being, like, very horrific, um, thanks to some of the, the rules of comedy about, like, see the hit of the pie on the face. Mm. Um, kind of example being applied to horror, where you see someone hit the water with the alligators. Mm-hmm. I just find it strange, or maybe just fascinating, at least, how we can have this spectrum of, like, comedy and horror mixed together, and on one end, there's Murders in the Zoo, and on the other, there's Abbott and Costello. Yeah, and, like, it it really is a spectrum, because you can look at some movies, you know, and you go, okay, well, this is horror with some comic relief, like Dr. X. And on the other hand, you're going, well, this is a comedy with kind of a a spooky theme, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, um, you know, and there's this this sliding scale, right? Uh, like, no one really is scared watching Ghostbusters, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, one other note about the writers. Um, tragically, Robert Lees was murdered in 2004 in his L.A. home at the age of 91 uh, by a violent intruder who was on a, um, like, a meth an ecstasy overdose. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this guy just, like, broke into his home and severed his head and then walked with his head to the next-door neighbor's house uh, who was in the middle of, like, phoning a travel agent to, like, book a vacation, (sighs) killed him, uh, left the head in that guy's house. The travel agent who was on the other end of the phone called the police, and eventually they caught up with this guy, like, trying to... I forget what they caught him trying to do, but, like, he was just continuing this, like, bizarre, violent rampage. Holy fuck. Wow, okay. That, that is legitimately terrifying. Yeah, so it's just a, a sort of unfortunate, like, tragic end to this guy's, uh, life, like I said, at, at age 91. So directing the picture... <laughs> no easy way to transition, no, eh? No, there isn't. There, what, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? Directing the picture is Albert S. Rogel whose first feature film was The Greatest Menace in 1923, and who had made over 80 movies by the time he directed The Black Cat, uh, with a total of 123 directing credits by his retirement in 1958. Wow. This guy did a lot of B-movies, he did a lot of westerns, he did a lot of everything. Like I said, he was into the 80s in terms of how many movies he'd made by the time he made this. So The Black Cat wasn't anything special or personal or artistic for him. It was just another day at work. Yeah. Perhaps the more significant member of the Black Cat's crew then, in terms of creative input or significance, is its cinematographer, Stanley Cortez. Born Stanley Krantz in New York in 1908, he changed his last name to Cortez in order to match his famous brother, Jacob Krantz, who had become an actor under the name of Ricardo Cortez. I mean, it is a good name. Uh, we've seen Ricardo Cortez before. He was the evil lawyer in The Walking Dead. 
Oh, yeah! And movie fans might also know him as the original Sam Spade in the 1931 version of The Maltese Falcon. Cool. So Stanley Cortez worked his way up from camera assistant to, you know, camera operator to cinematographer while serving under DOPs like Carl Struss, who we know because he did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Island of Lost Souls. Dang. Those are like... High on the list. Jekyll and Hyde's number one and Island of Lost Souls is number four. Yeah. Whew. Cortez then served as director of photography on a succession of B pictures, starting in 1936. But the Black Cat would prove to be a turning point in his career. His skilled camera work, moving through the movie's Victorian mansion setting, caught the eye of Orson Welles, who hired Cortez to shoot his 1942 picture, The Magnificent Ambersons. Whoa, that's so cool. Other renowned Cortez shot films include The Night of the Hunter and The Three Faces of Eve, both of which are from the 1950s. I'm not familiar with The Three Faces of Eve, but Night of the Hunter, is not a really famous film noir. It's a horror film directed by Charles Lawton that we'll be watching when we get to it in 1955. Charles Lawton? Yeah, it's the only film he ever directed. I didn't know he directed anything. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Well, you'll have to. (laughs) (laughs) Heading the cast of The Black Cat is Basil Rathbone. Uh, who we last saw in the titular role in Son of Frankenstein. We went into some detail on his biography in that episode, which was episode 66. Uh, But since that film, his career had changed forever uh, because he had starred in 1939's The Hound of the Baskervilles Mm. as Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Since then, he had done uh, one more Holmes movie, uh, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but... Eventually, he would ultimately appear in 14 Sherlock Holmes movies, in addition to portraying the detective on stage and radio. And actually, I think on, like, records? The, like, 1940s equivalent of, like, audiobooks, where, like, he would play Holmes in, like, audio drama versions of, like, the short stories that you could get as, like, LPs or something, or EPs or singles? I don't fucking know. On vinyl. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Additionally, Rathbone had played Richard III in The Tower of London in 1939 alongside Vincent Price and Boris Karloff, and he'd appeared as the villainous Captain Esteban in 1940's The Mark of Zorro. Awesome. So, the comedy of the Black Cat primarily comes from the addition of the character Mr. Penny, who was played by vaudevillian Hugh Herbert. Born in 1885... Herbert had acted in vaudeville for years before finding success in movies in the 1930s, using a kind of silly, easily flustered, absent-minded style of character. Okay, so kind of like, you know, a professor. Yeah, um, sort of halfway between, like, an absent-minded professor and, like, a a stooge, like (laughs) like Moe. In the 1930s, he was signed with Warner Brothers, But in 1939, he switched to Universal uh, before moving to Columbia in 1943. Another familiar face to movie fans in this film is Broderick Crawford. Born in 1911 in Philadelphia, Crawford was descended from two generations of vaudeville performers. 
He originated the role of Lenny in Of Mice and Men on Broadway in 1937. And while this success got him into movies, he lost out on reprising the role in the 1939 movie version to Lon Chaney Jr. Mm -hmm. It would be in 1949 that Broderick Crawford would achieve his greatest fame as politician Willie Stark in All the King's Men. Oh. uh, Which would win him the Academy Award for Best Actor. Nice. From 1955 to 1959, he starred in the television series Highway Patrol, and he would continue acting until 1982, passing away in 1986. The movie's female lead is played by Anne Gwynn, who we last saw in Black Friday as Karloff's daughter. Uh, Since then, the popular pinup had appeared as Lady Sonya in Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe. (laughs) And, of course, because this is my favorite piece of trivia about her, I will just mention once again that she is Chris Pine's grandmother. (laughs) So, giving the black cat its greatest horror cred is the casting of Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. Um, However, this would not be nearly as juicy a part as he had in the 1934 version. Uh, Here, Lugosi plays the mansion's groundskeeper. A typically small role given to Lugosi by Universal so that they could proudly tout his presence in the advertising. Yeah, as per Universal's usual strategy. Yeah. In an even smaller role is an actor who was an absolute nobody in 1941, uh, but whose future stardom would be exploited by future re-releases of The Black Cat, which would put his name at the top billing, despite his very small role in the movie. This is Alan Ladd. He was signed by Universal to contract in 1933 at age 20, after a talent scout had seen him in a high school performance of the Mikado. However, he was dropped from that contract after one uncredited movie appearance, and had to work odd jobs through the 1930s in order to save up to attend acting school. He finally found success on radio, where his deep voice was ideal for the medium. His radio work got him an agent, and by the early 1940s, he was paying his dues, appearing in many small roles in small films like this one. His big break would be the 1942 crime drama This Gun for Hire for Paramount, where he played a hitman opposite Veronica Lake as a nightclub singer which would lead to a series of Alan Ladd-Veronica Lake pairings that would end up making Alan Ladd a major star. Other major appearances by Ladd include the title role in the 1949 version of The Great Gatsby, the title role in 1953's Shane, um, the famous Western, and uh, many other films before he passed away in 1964 due to a accidental overdose of prescription drugs and alcohol. Hmm. So The Black Cat was released on May 2nd, 1941, and it was a mild success, um, as we can tell by the way that, you know, people who were involved in making it went on to bigger and better things. Uh, Although for the rest of the decade, the horror and comedy at Universal would be much more clearly split, uh, at least until they joined together again in 1948. I think our biggest task watching this movie is going to be to determine the extent of each genre's dominance, uh, (laughs) which is to say, to decide whether is this a horror that has comic relief in it, or is this a comedy that has a spooky theme? 
Yeah, where on the spectrum does it lie? I think the comedy might also kind of date the movie, For depending sure. on where it falls. Yes. Yeah, because like a movie like the first Cat in the Canary, um, that is has like comedic elements peppered throughout, you know, and it was kind of like okay, or the the monster mm-hmm. from like nineteen twenty five or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think this is going to be interesting, but I have more hopes now that I know who the cinematographer is. <laughs> Um, how are we watching this? Well, The Black Cat from 1941 is available on DVD in the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive. Um, it isn't available to stream anywhere at the moment. Um, so if you want to watch it, that's where you got to find it. Well, folks, to watch along, um, good luck. Find the DVD and good luck. Um, you're going to hear a brief musical break. And when we come back, we will discuss The Black Cat from 1941 Directed by Albert S. Rogel. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Black Cat from 1941, directed by Albert S. Rogel. Ben, what did you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I love cats. <laughs> I know you love cats. Yeah, this has good cat content. There was a lot of cats in the movie, there yes. There so many cats. Oh. You're gonna end up like the old lady in this movie, huh? Yeah. Everyone kept being like, oh, this old lady's crazy because she has this mansion full of cats. And I was like, yes, please. (laughs) Any first thoughts? It was fun. It was a diverting time. It was okay. It was consumable content. Yeah, it was fun. Fun, disposable fluff. There was some bits I liked. There was some bits I disliked. Don't really have super strong feelings one way or the other. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, how about I tell the listeners about it? Yeah, absolutely. Go right ahead. So it's a typical old dark house kind of film. Um, So if you're familiar with what that kind of trope means, there's a big mansion and lots of characters. And there is a bit of running around. You could call it padding for time, but because it's part of the trope of this trope (laughs) part of the flavor of this particular trope of an old dark house film it's a convention of this subgenre the yes what ben said convention of the subgenre that there's some running around um i don't like harsh on its mellow in the same way that i do with like poverty row films which are clearly padding for time but let let me kind of lay out some of the characters for you so we have henrietta winslow who is the grandmother who is like on her deathbed And her family is in the house. Henrietta is the one who has all of the cats, and therefore she is my favorite. Basil Rathbone plays Montague Hartley um, with his wife, Myrna Hartley, and uh, their stepson, Richard Hartley. And that's Alan Ladd. Yes, Alan Ladd is Richard. Um, There is Elaine, um, who I did not get a last name for. I think... Yeah, I think she must just be a Winslow, because she's just 
her granddaughter, right? Yeah. Then there's Margaret Gordon, Stanley Borden. We have the housekeeper, Abigail Dune, who is also my favorite. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Um, Greenskeeper, Eduardo, who is Bella Lugosi. And the worst two characters, Hubert Smith and Mr. Penny. Um, Mr. Penny being the biggest culprit of comedy, um, and Hubert Smith kind of setting Mr. Penny up to do the punchline. They're basically the main characters, though. Yeah, which is kind of the worst part of this movie. I won't go into all of the, like, twists and turns and dramatic tensions of these characters' lives, because the idea with the Old Dark House subgenre is that there's, like, twists and turns and, like, and discoveries of people's secrets and what they're hiding in their lives. Um, but kind of what you need to know is that Monty, as he gets called, Montague, um, he is in a lot of debt because of poor business dealings. Um, so that's kind of his motivation for getting the money. But he's also having an affair with Margaret Gordon. They are, like, related through marriage into this family. Like, they aren't blood-related. That's right. Just to be clear. Um, Monty's stepson Richard does know about this affair and keeps threatening to tell his mother, Myrna. I think that's kind of it. Like, maybe you need to know that um, Richard is a chemist because there's some, like, poison possibilities there. Um, Stanley Borden is the son of the architect who designed the house, so he would know of the secret passages. Um, but that's that's all side yeah. stuff. The, the main thing you need to know is about the affair and Richard knowing about it. Hubert Smith and Mr. Penny are antiquers slash people who buy property for other, like, like, realtors, basically, um, and they have someone who's interested in buying the property, and Monty invited them to check out everything uh, one evening when he thought Henrietta would be dead, but she is not. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's kind of an awkward time when they're there. Henrietta's will states that, you know, everyone will get something, but they won't get anything um, until after Abigail and all of Henrietta's cats die, mm -hmm. and there'll be a lot of cats. She loves cats so much that not only is she, like, she built this mansion specifically to house all of her cats, there's, like, a ton of cats out in this giant yard, um, but she also has a crematorium on the estate where her cats get cremated and stored, and she plans to be cremated there to be stored with her cats. I feel like interred is the word. Instead of stored, yeah. yes, that is that is correct. I mean, the end result is, is the same. same, but it's a much better language choice. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> and it's just boxes of these urns, <laughs> and she's finally interred, and they're like, she will never be found here. <laughs> hidden in plain sight. Oh. Now, it's it's pretty clear to us um, that Henrietta is murdered, and it's clear to, to Hubert as well, and he spends a lot of the movie trying to convince the other family members of the murder, um, who all just go like, no, she died of natural causes, despite the, like, stab wound. And Mr. Penny is doing comic gags, 
kind of too much, obviously. Um, but uh, along the way, there's also some very good horror gags, I guess you could call them, like horror moments. Basically, it all kind of comes to a climax when, like, as always with these kind of old Dark House movies, we see hooded figures moving through the uh, secret passageways and stuff like that, but we come across Abigail hanged, and it's a little shocking because we see Abigail from the shoulders down hanged against a closet door, but we're seeing it in a mirror, so we're not quite seeing it, so maybe that's how they got around the sensors. Um, I, th- I think also just the fact that you never see the rope around her neck, you know, clearly. Yeah. So that's, like, when we come into that, it's kind of like, whoa, because, like, everything else until this point has been, like, dark and spooky atmosphere, no real horror. And they figure out that the way that the closet door splintered onto the wood, Abigail did not commit suicide, she was hanged. Mm-hmm. She was murdered. So as they're figuring that out, they go into Myrna's room and discover she's hanged as well. But she has survived. And as everyone except Elaine pull her down and, you know, check her out, Elaine's looking at the rope and notices that she would have been committing suicide. Mm -hmm. Myrna says that Eduardo was the one who attacked her. So all the men rush off to go attack Eduardo. He runs off. Eduardo runs back to confront Myrna and says, why did you tell them that I hurt you? I did no such thing. And she shoots him um, with like the one gun in the house. Elaine, though, is in the room and she goes, why did you shoot him? Because Myrna, I, I know you were trying to commit suicide. And then it dawns on Elaine that Myrna knows about Monty's affair with Margaret. And she killed Henrietta and Abigail in order to get the inheritance money in order to basically have money hanging over Monty's head in order for him to stay with her. And as Elaine is like, Myrna, no! Myrna bashes her on the head with uh, the gun. Again, we don't see this, but it's cut very cleverly and in um, a very suspenseful way. And she basically carries Elaine through the secret passages to the crematorium. Now, the one thing that I should have mentioned earlier... So this movie's called The Black Cat. There is a black cat in this movie. It's not just, like, with a bunch of other cats. It's specifically said that Henrietta does not own any black cats. But every time that there's been a murder or been threats of violence, a black cat has been stalking the victim. Wow. Yeah, they have someone, real, like, a person really trying to do a meow, and, like, a meow, I should just say, and uh, the, the person is not doing it very well. I think it's they're trying to do like kind of a low growl panther type thing while still making it clear that it's a house cat, and they do a poor job. <laughs> like, that's exactly what it sounds like. So that's kind of the spooky black cat part. Now, Myrna has taken Elaine into the crematorium. She's put her into the oven, I guess is just what it's called. And she puts the live black cat in there. And I I was like, it's a live black cat. Don't fucking burn the cat. How dare you? I was more concerned about this black cat than about Elaine. Full disclosure. And just as she's about to turn the fireplace on, basically, 
the oven on. Hubert, who followed through the secret passageways and came out through uh, into the crematorium, stumbles upon this, and Myrna's trying to play it off and hide what she's doing, but then Hubert hears coming from the oven, and there's the black cat tying with Poe. Um, so he pushes Myrna out of the way and is, like, trying to get the oven door open, um, which he does, and the black cat jumps out and, um, runs over to where Myrna is and knocks off a candle. The candle lights Myrna's dress on fire, and she is engulfed in flames in front of her eyes. She runs out of the crematorium and is completely burnt up, and Hubert has rescued Elaine. And then we get a nice epilogue of Elaine selling the house. Mr. Penny specifically calls her Mrs. Smith, so it's clear that she's gotten married to Hubert. Um, and she now has all this money because she's selling all of these antiques and stuff. Yeah. The end. Did I miss anything? Not anything important. Okay. The, the th- yeah, because I was doing some paraphrasing with, like, all of the running around. Oh, yeah, for on. sure. Because, I mean, like with any of these movies, the goal is to try and make it so that at some point in the movie you could conceivably think that any of the people in the house might be the person behind the murders, right? So everybody has an opportunity, everybody has cause, everybody has motive. Like, at one point I even thought maybe they were going to make Elaine uh, the killer for a while, I mean, basically, the only people you know definitely aren't the killer are Hubert and Mr. Penny, because they're... I mean, basically, Hubert's the protagonist. Like, quite honestly, Broderick Crawford should have gotten top billing. Yeah. Like, he's the protagonist. He's who we're following. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Penny's his dopey sidekick, basically. And and the thing about Mr. Penny, he's... Um, when In the intro, when I talked about um, Hugh Herbert, that's him. He's very detached from the rest of the movie. Yeah. His content is a lot of, like, there are a couple times where he intersects with the main film, but really a lot of it is, like, cutting to him, doing goofy gags throughout the house, and then cutting back to the main story. And if I had to sort of describe his style of humor, he's it's kind of a Costello. Like, it's, it's kind of that, like, high-pitched voice, a little bit excitable kind of mumbly, kind of, like, quick-talking, reacting to inanimate objects and saying some quip at them kind of thing. Hubert Smith, played by Broderick Crawford, like, he's our protagonist, but he's also a comedy character. But I think I would describe his comedy as, like, closer to, like, a Bill Murray-type thing, Mm. where it's, like, kind of that, like, he's kind of a dopey sad sack who, like is trying to do the right thing, but he's too much of a kind of a fuck-up to really, like, do anything well and is always kind of bumbling around and, you know, you just kind of want to see him succeed because he's, you know, like, the underdog or whatever kind of deal. Like, that that's sort of, to me, felt closer to how I would describe him. Yeah, if Hubert was the only comedic relief in this movie, I think I, I would have, like, handled it better. Sure. Mr. Penny just, you know... You, you think a penny is, like, not a lot of money, but as soon as you put it in, it's like, nah, I was fine. I don't need this change. There's a reason Canada got rid of the penny. For sure. <laughs> um, Thank you for laughing at my joke. Yeah, it, it's it's a little weird because, like, you know, even if you look at, like, Abbott and Costello, like, that's straight man and foil, right? 
But Hubert's not really a straight man either. Like, he's comedic too. And it really makes me feel like, like you can really feel, I think, how Mr. Penny is added on. Because I think, like, you're totally right. Like, I think this still would have been in the horror comedy, you know, vibe if it had just been Hubert who was funny. Um, but you, but Penny is not only so much more comedic, but his stuff has so little to do with the rest of the movie that he really feels tacked on. To the point where, when the horror really starts ramping up, i.e. with the murders and the hangings, Mr. Penny's just nowhere to be seen. Yeah, exactly. He kind of disappears yeah. for a while. And then at the end of the movie, when they kind of run back into him again, he doesn't even know that any murders have happened, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, Broderick Crawford should have gotten top billing. Basil Rathbone, who did get top billing, he his part's a lot smaller than you'd think it is. He's really just a red herring, right? Because Montague, through the whole movie, like you're so he's he's the obvious pick for who the villain is. He's got the you know the mustache and the business problems and the he's having an affair and you know he's so dastardly. So he's really just there to be a red herring. But at least Basil Rathbone isn't as wasted as Bela Lugosi, mm. who has an even smaller part and is also just here to be a red herring, and nothing of his role really takes advantage of it being Bela Lugosi. Like, it could have been anyone in that part. It's really, it really is like, he's in the movie just because, oh, it, the killer must be Bela Lugosi, you know? That's really it. Yeah. For him. like, And also marketing purposes. Yeah, you could cut him out of the movie for the most part and it wouldn't make a big difference. He is kind of important towards the end. But yeah, it's a real waste of an actor. I know we've had some, but they've been so few and far between that I can't remember it being very frequent um, that we have a female killer. Yeah, I thought that the twist of Myrna Hartley as the killer was very effectively shocking. I thought that was probably one of the two most effective moments in the movie for me. And it was well done both in that, like, you know, you don't see it coming. Like I said, I thought it was going to be Elaine. You don't see it coming. It makes sense when it's explained. And the actress also does a good job of going from kind of the very, like, helpless, like, oh, Monty, don't leave me alone, kind of Myrna, to the murderous version, which is um, better than, like, for example, in Horror Island, where we kind of had a hard time with the killer reveal in that movie, because the actor couldn't really swing the transition. Yeah, and what I kind of like about Myrna is that, like, Monty says something about, like, you know, you should take it easy, Myrna, you're not as young as you used to be, and she says something like, yeah, I'm not. And, like, there's just, like, I don't know. I thought it was interesting that we have this older actress. She, like, I don't know how old she is, but, like, it, with the makeup, I think Myrna's supposed to be around 40 or 50. Um, especially because her son is, like, adult. Yeah. At the very least, 18. And her husband's having an affair with someone who's, like, her stepson's age. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know, like... I think she's a very convincing character. Yeah, it's an effective motivation. Like, it all makes a lot of sense. And, and, like, I think it's very apt of you to point out that moment of the, like, oh, you're not as young as you used to be, whatever. Because that's a very good example of the movie, like, actually seeding the motivations earlier. You know, not just that Monty's having an affair, but, like, the, the more deep-seated emotional 
problems that aren't just like, oh, I'm jealous, right? Like, yeah. um, that, that kind of help inform the character. Um, the actress, Gladys Cooper, dame of the British Empire, Gladys Cooper, um, was born in 1888, so that would make her 53 when they made this movie. Okay, so I was close. Yeah, you were, you were about in the right ballpark. The other moment for me that worked well... Uh, other than the reveal of Myrna as the killer, is the other moment that you highlighted talking about the plot, um, which is Abigail's death, which is, I think, mostly so shocking because, A, we're in that code era when everything's been so tame, but also just, B, because the movie really is pretty goofy up to that point. Like, it's, it's much more in the Abbott and Costello side of the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein you know, spectrum. Um, so that when that moment happens, it's like the first really serious bit of violence and it kind of is a bit out of nowhere. So it really mm-hmm. catches you off guard. I mean, yeah, like when Henrietta... So Henrietta has an attempted murder mm-hmm. um, and then an actual murder. So when she's... A, it's a, an attempt. Um, it's just some poisoned milk. Um, and we see basically a cat die because it drinks the milk instead of her... And so that's not too bad, but she's, like, you know, shocked. She goes and puts this dead cat into the crematorium to inter it, mm-hmm. do do all the things. And she's looking at someone off frame, and of course it's, you know, a secret, because we don't get to see the killer until the end. But we get, like, these kind of, like, close-up shots coming closer to her, and then, like, screams from outside. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we see the outside of the crematorium and that's kind of like uh yeah it's it's okay like it's just standard right yeah yeah it's what you would kind of expect yeah and 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 her death isn't shocking anyways because you know like she has to die yeah exactly for there to be a plot right it's like saying like oh i was so shocked there there was a lightsaber fight in the latest star wars like no you weren't right that's why we're all here yeah that's what we came to see um this old lady die um (laughs) but yeah abigail's murder shocks because it really is kind of out of nowhere. Like, they go into her room and it's just kind of, oh, yeah. here we are. Um, before Abigail dies, her character is the one who gives the most horror atmosphere to the movie. Um, the actress is Gail Sondegard, and she's very over the top. Um, she probably could have... You, you could have had her just in a regular horror movie, I think, just fine. She kind of reminds me a little bit of um, the Mammy Pleasant character from... Um, Cat in the Canary, but she's, um, whereas Mammy Pleasant was kind of like a, a withered, you know, skeletal woman, kind of creepy, gaunt, um, Abigail's a lot younger. She's not like 20-something young. She's kind of middle-aged, but she kind of has a bit of like a, bit of like a femme fatale attitude going on. I think what you're thinking of is feline. She struck me as someone who is yes. trying to be a bit of a, like, a personification of a cat. Yes, 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 yes. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So she, she, she has a lot of, she adds a lot of personality to the movie, for sure. Yeah. I really liked her. The other thing that I feel gives this movie the sort of horror atmosphere that it has is the cinematography. Um, the movie looks great. It it looks like a horror movie. Yeah, the mood and atmosphere is all there. Um, it's shot exactly like you would expect a horror movie to look. It has the shadows. It has 
um, the very big storm outside. Yeah. Despite some of that storm footage being stock, it has, like, some creepy moments of, like, doors and windows just, like, busting open with the rain in, in, in ways that were, like reminiscent of these older movies like Cat in the Canary mm -hmm. and even like The Monster from mm -hmm. 1925, but not in a way that made it feel old-fashioned. Mm. They felt like homages a little bit. Um, yeah, a lot of this movie I would describe as an homage in a, in, in a way. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard to figure out, like, if there's, you know, like, is this a movie that's homaging an older style or is this movie old-fashioned and old-hat and playing out really tiresome tropes, right? I feel like sometimes what you need to, like, justify saying you have uh, made an homage is some distance between, you know, you and the last movie, straight movie of this type that got made. And I'm not, I just am not 100% sure that we've had enough distance. Uh, but I, I, I... What I'm saying is I think you have an argument. I'm just wondering, you know, if we can say for certain that this is homage and not just, you know what I mean? Yeah, my argument is that it would be old-fashioned if we didn't have the straight-up lady hanging from a door twice or older lady being the villain. Um, those feel modern enough that it everything else feels like an homage, rather than being... If it was old-fashioned, it would not have that. It would have Basil Rathbone as the villain, you know? Um, and especially with the type of comedy that we were having from Mr. Penny, which was very physical, um, it would be right up there with the monster or the bat. Especially the bat whispers, because the bat has a bit more of a twist, in my opinion. The bat whispers is just stage play. Yeah. Um... This, because we didn't see the person, we didn't see the killer coming. Um, we got some, like, stuff where, like, I'm like, I want to know how they got some of the stuff through the sensors. I don't know. To me, it's an homage. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some stuff, like, I think Myrna goes up, like, a Roman candle at the end of the movie, which seems, like, a little much, but, yeah. like, that's that's definitely, like, a code thing in terms of, like, you know, the only way that she can be the villain is if she gets punished, right, and dies at the end, right? And you it's can't... a cat that does it. Yeah. You know, so, like, our hero keeps his hands clean. Yeah, you can't... She gets an ironic, you know, punishment kind of deal. Yeah. And I will say that um, I forget the type of fabric this is, but she is wearing a dress made of a fabric that lights the fuck up. Yeah, it's it's like a nightgown kind of. Yeah, thing I think it's wearing. like rayon is mm -hmm. the name of the fabric. But yeah, it uh, I it, it is not beyond the realm of possibilities for her to light up like that. Yeah, but I mean, so she she has to die because of that because we can't have a sympathetic villain like that. I'm kind of surprised that. Basil Rathbone got to get away with having, um, like, the affair. Especially, like, again, like, you're right, he's not blood-related to the person he's having an affair with, but I feel like, you know, because he's Myrna's second husband, and the woman he's having an affair with is, like, is related to Myrna, right? Like, that's the relation there, right? Like, all the women are related. Um, and then they've all married into these other men. 
And, like, so it's not just adultery, like, it's adultery with, like, a sprinkling hint of incest. And so, like, that, the fact that, like, Rathbone doesn't get any punishment at the end of the movie, that's sort of seems like an oversight. I feel like that's almost like, you know, the code censor watching this movie and just losing track of how many plot lines and characters and <laughs> things going on. That is part of the old Dark House thing, though. Yeah. Um, I think they get away with the the hanging stuff specifically because it's not enough of it is on screen, right? Yeah. Like, it's very carefully done so that, like, the information is clear enough for the audience to have understood what happened, but you're avoiding really showing any grisly details. Yeah, even when they find Myrna hanged, she they pull open the closet door, and we don't see anything. We see the rope going over the closet door, and we see her shadow mm-hmm. of, like, her head with, like, kind of like a rope it's it it's like i don't know i feel like it would be shocking for the audience at the time yeah i think um this is like a pretty easy example to point to of the fact that like a lot of times when you have these sensor constraints on what you can show you know you have to get very clever about how you get the information across and oftentimes what ends up happening is the suggestion of details becomes more impactful on an audience than just showing it. So, um, it sounds like you really liked this one. I wouldn't say, like, really liked it, but I think where we're going to have some contention is it sounds like you don't think it's a horror movie. No, I I don't. Um, I'll admit that it picked up towards the end. I will admit that. There was a big, like, until Abigail died, there was some parts I found kind of fun, some stuff that kind of tickled my fancy, but a big long stretch of like the first 40 minutes of this, you know, 70 minute movie, I was very bored because it was the same kind of old dark house tropes we'd seen a million times. And then the comedy stuff was like, man, if I wanted to see this, I would just see an Abbott and Costello movie. Like (laughs) I would just see, you know, someone do it right. Um, so I was, I was very not interested it did pick up towards the end. I did like the stuff with the the hangings uh, were very affecting. The Myrna twist was very good. But ultimately where I kind of landed on with this movie is despite the use of like some spooky atmosphere, it never felt like it was trying to scare me or like make me feel afraid or, or terrified of anything. Even in the way that some of the older old Dark House movies clearly were like, I think the bat is trying to scare you. This, to me, instead of a horror comedy, felt more like a mystery comedy. Uh, Because to me, watching this movie, when it wasn't being funny, the emphasis felt more like it was on the who's behind all this kind of mystery parts of the old Dark House tropes, which it did very well, the multitude of characters and running around from room to room and, hey, which one of you is missing at which particular time kind of stuff. And then the Myrna reveal and how that, like, really made sense and clicked. Um, This, you know, yes, there's some unfortunate incidents in the movie, like, like acts of violence, I guess, but there's acts of violence in murder mysteries, right? Um, And that's kind of what this felt more like to me, was the emphasis being more on mystery than on horror. Okay. I feel like this is a horror movie. I see where you're coming from, where it's not, like, actively trying to scare you in the way that, like, yeah, Cat, Cat in the Canary Yeah, even the Cat in the Canary. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's a very apt, like, 
thing to compare to because of, like, this feeling like an homage to me. Um, I think the fact that it is, it's not, like, succeeding at scaring you means that it's not a very good horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's a little tame. I think, like... It's also very heavy on the comedy. Yeah, especially that. Um, so I, what I was thinking with ranking was, like, I was really drawn towards 1925's The Monster. So sure, that it, makes sense as a point of comparison. Yeah, because if you go back to that, that was like a pretty early full-length horror movie we were watching. We have Lon Chaney Sr. as the big bad. Big spooky house, big spooky um, massive storm outside. Yes. And a bunch of <laughs> actors, yes. uh, physical comedians, um, bumbling around the house, um, getting into gags, um, having the moments of like... You know, they're standing by the bookcase and a hand is reaching over to them and they keep, like, moving out of range or slapping it away because I think it's the cat. You know, it felt very, like, similar. Mm -hmm. And, again, that's probably why I keep coming back to the feeling of an homage. So, like, honestly, like, I, I do think that this is a horror movie. If you look at the, like, why would they bring in Bella Lugosi if it was going to not be horror? Yeah, I, I mean... That's the other thing that I feel with this movie is if this movie has, I think, a problem, it's a bit of an identity crisis. Yeah. In the sense of like... Like you got Bella Lugosi, you got Basil Rathbone, mm -hmm. who was in None of Frankenstein. I think that's the last time he was in a Universal picture too. Yes. So like people going to see him in a Universal picture are going to be like, yeah, he's probably like, this is a horror movie. Yeah, it, it's like, and the thing too is like when you look at the um, poster. Oh, which I love. Because um, it is that big cat. It, it doesn't, you know, like look at the poster for this and then look at the poster for the Bob Hope Cat and the Canary or the Bob Hope Ghostbreakers or even um, the Abbott and Costello Hold That Ghost from later this same year. Those posters all say, this is a comedy. This is like, you're going to laugh at the same time as you're screaming or whatever, right? The poster for this doesn't really indicate that at all. I don't even think uh, Hugh Herbert's on the poster. Mm -hmm. um, but watching the movie, like, it's a big chunk of the screen time. And so it really makes me feel like this is a movie that couldn't decide whether it was a horror movie with comic relief or whether it was a comedy with some spooky stuff. And, you know, like I said, I thought it was more mystery than horror I do get what you're saying, that it's an homage to these older films. Uh, I think that's pretty pretty clear. The only thing that really makes this not a comedy, a that it's a horror or mystery uh, with comic relief, is the fact that like the deaths are handled kind of with the, the weight that they get handled. Yes. Right? Like, people don't... Especially because, like, hanging's kind of like a grisly way to die. Um, I mean, I know that we've made jokes about how, like, strangling seems to be the only way you can kill people post-code, but, like, hanging is a bit different than, like, you know, taking a scarf and going around someone's neck with it, like... Or taking your house coat and putting it over <laughs> someone's head. Yeah, until they suffocate under it. Like, it's a bit grisly, and it's a bit... It, it sort of just crosses the line of how grisly you can kind of be in, like, a full comedy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, nobody, nobody gets hanged in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know? 
yeah, if if you feel this is horror, I'm willing to rank it. Um, I wasn't sort of, my initial thought was this is more mystery to me than horror, and I was like going to disqualify it. But if you want to rank it, we can certainly go for that. Cool. So you're looking around number 69. Number 69 is the monster. Yeah. And honestly, I would feel like I would put this like, you know, in that slot, bump the monster down. Above the monster, we have La Llorona, which I feel is like a little difficult to compare to this film because it's like Mexico's first horror film. It's a little primitive. Yeah. Um, so you could go like, well, the filmmaking techniques would put the black cat above that. And then at 67 is Black Moon, um, which I feel like, you know, that movie we did not find scary. So it could go either way. So you're kind of talking yourself up. I want to kind of just... Um... Yeah, I was looking down. Um, because below the monster is Night of Terror. Which is also an old Dark House movie. Yeah, and below that is Sex Maniac. The other black cat adaptation. And it's a closer adaptation than this film. Yes. I mean, not that that really played too much against 1934's The Black Cat. Definitely not. Like, I, I think this is better than Night of Terror and Sex Maniac and Crime of Dr. Crespi. Because even if... Night of Terror is like a more straight horror movie. Um, the filmmaking skill and technique of, say, Night of Terror or Sex Maniac or Crime of Dr. Crespi is way lower than what we have here. Like, yes. just on like a pure, like, were the people making the movie competent level, this is better. And in fact, I, I think this movie exceeds that quite a bit. I think this is a... Very well shot, very good looking movie, you know, even if the, the the jokes don't land, right? Yeah. The thing that I have a hard time judging it against the monster is, do I judge it based on like, which was scarier, this or the monster? Or do I judge it based on like, which was funnier, this or the monster? Because they're, they're both pretty half and half on the horror comedy thing. Yeah, that's why I kind of felt like it was apt to mm -hmm. compare. I was thinking that the black cat would go above it just because of, yes, this technical skill in the monster, not only because it's Lon Chaney Sr. doing his makeup thing and, and Roland West kind of copying some of the people, but like doing like some pretty imaginative things here. Um, this film is like taking the look and feel of an old dark house conventions and kind of raising it. A bit, like you said. Like, it feels really good. Okay, okay. I'll, 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 yeah, I think that's a, a good point. Um, certainly the monster is not Roland West's best either. Like, yeah. um, he, he has better stuff. Okay. <sighs> See, on the one hand, I'm reluctant to put it above Black Moon because Black Moon wasn't funny. Like, it was straight. Uh, and this is clearly really concerned with being a comedy for most of its running time. Flip side, the thing that Black Moon wants you to be afraid of is the natives in the jungle or whatever. They're afraid because they're going to get, you know, sieged by the, the natives. And I'm just being like, yeah, okay, let's, let's see it. Yeah, the slaves of Haiti are rising up. Yeah. Um, to be fair, um, Black Cat 
does have some racism, with everyone just firmly believing that Eduardo, the one foreign type of name, is the killer. With, like, one white lady being like, it was him. I mean, listen, he's also Bella Lugosi. So, like, if you had, like, a groundskeeper who just spent his entire workday peeking in through windows on the outside of your house and he looked like Bella Lugosi, like, I, I'd buy that accusation, too. <laughs> but I see what your point is. Okay, thanks. Um, um, okay, so, do you want to put this above Black Moon, below the golem, then? Yeah, let's do that. Cool. Um, because, yeah, I, I definitely do not feel comfortable putting this above the golem, so. Yeah, at a certain point, it's just... It, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. All right. Well, you you managed to talk it onto the list, and, you know, in a, in a decently respectable spot on the list as well. Uh, so coming in at number 67 is The Black Cat from 1941, directed by Albert S. Rogel. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal, question, concern, suggestion, anything of the sort, you can send it through Tumblr, through our Ask box, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can leave a rating or a review on iTunes. That really helps out uh, with other people finding and seeing the show. You can also tell people about the show on social media, share us around. We'd really appreciate it. Or just tell a friend about us in real life. Word of mouth is a great way for podcasts to grow and infect others through their ears. Yes. Another way you can help out the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons will get thanked on the show, and at the $5 donation level, you get access to weekly bonus audio uploads of deleted content from past episodes. At the $10 donation level, you get access to monthly horror short fiction that I write. At all levels, you'll get access to the uh, Halloween music that Sarah put up throughout the month of October, and if we can hit our first Patreon goal of $150, uh, we will start doing bonus episodes, one a month, that will be available to everyone, uh, patrons and regular Creatures of the Night regardless, that will cover horror-adjacent movies, uh, so we could maybe watch the Cat in the Canary Bob Hope version. Or... Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Exactly. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, uh, this week's episode was a kind of a remake of a high-ranking film on the list. Next week's episode certainly is a remake of a high-ranking film on the list, because next week we are watching the MGM production of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Starring Spencer Tracy and Ingrid Bergman. All right, we'll start taking bets now for whether a new it knocks, challenger appears. <laughs> whether it knocks off the number one movie on the list. Until then, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.